some of you remember that I spoke to you uh, a couple of years ago uh, concerning this, this topic of uh, foundational principles. And I, I only got about halfway through. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do a little more summarizing on the points that I made a way back, even though you probably forgot everything I said. I know I forgot about half. Um, so uh, there's a list of six elementary teachings we're supposed to do in some way and characterize the uniqueness of the messianic, messianic sect of, Jeru, of Jude, Judaism. Sorry, I'm going to be reading a lot. Uh, those of you who have been in here for a long time know I trip over my words a lot when I use my own brain. Uh, so I, I wrap my brain on paper. Um, so I hope I'm able to uh, keep and hold your attention by doing that. Uh, so first, uh, I, I, would, I would have you turn to the book of Hebrews. This is going to be a little bit of a, a Bible sword drill day. Uh, a lot of these things we have been taught here, uh, but there are some new people here, and there's always visitors, so it's good to kind of cover these basics because um, a lot of times growing up, our Christian traditions have kind of twisted some of these things to uh, make them, um, Scripture say things that they don't say. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm going to have you uh, be at Hebrews 6. Um, but let's cover about what, what the writer of the Hebrews has talked about. Um, in the preceding chapters, the, writers, the writer tells us about how God has spoken to us. So if you turn to chapter 1, uh, read verses 2 and 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So those verses are about the role that Jesus plays, right? And then in chapter 2, uh, looking at verses 9 and 10, um, it, it reads, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So, the, And then, um, sorry, the first part was about how God has spoken to us. That part is about the role of Jesus. And then this next part about how his priesthood is greater than coming than those who came before him. So flip over to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. In chapter 4, we're told that the believer finds rest in holding firm to the faith and to place our trust in the Jesus, uh, in Jesus our high priest, who sympathizes with our weakness. In chapter 5, he continues on this high priest comparison, and we get our first mention of Melchizedek. But in uh, those verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, he takes on a little bit more of an admonishing tone. He says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. But for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of, pra because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So they become dull of hearing. Anyone in here who have children seem to have become dull of hearing? 
No. Uh, he wants to continue to give them the deep stuff, but he fears they may not be able to handle it. He wants to give them spiritual food, but thinks they might not be able to handle the milk. Um, like a newborn baby. So, um, so what we're going to focus on today is Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal life. Uh, sorry, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So there are ba- six basic teachings, so elementary, that he doesn't even explain what they are. But that's because he was writing to an audience that understood, uh, that they would recognize the subtle allusions to numerous Older Testament passages. He's already been quoting and... I just cut out? Okay, we're good. Um, paraphrasing the Torah, the Psalms, and the Prophets, and doesn't have to say from... From where specifically? Because his Jewish audience would have had the same upbringing and education that he would have had. So when he's when he's pulling passages from Scripture, he doesn't have to quote it because they, they all know it. So the six teachings are the following. Repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. Instruction about washings. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead. And eternal judgment. Now, uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, Dr. Stokes uh, covered... Um, in, in great depth, right? Last year, probably six months of the year, he, he, he spent covering these topics. So I'm just going to kind of wash over them a little bit, right? Uh, just touch them in brief. So let's uh, talk about repentance from dead works. Um, dead works really means a behavior that leads to death. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, you can turn there or not, um, just a quick verse. As he's saying goodbye and recapping their journey in the wilderness, he says, I have set before you life and death blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So living by the word is choosing life. But that's Moses, and according to what we've been taught, we don't have to listen to Moses because that's being legalistic, right? So, but then we read that John the Immerser, or John the Baptist, uh, in Matthew chapter 3. Let's flip over there real quick. So they have a choice to make, right? It's it's um, living by God's word, right? And we're supposed to turn away. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then also in, in Mark 1, verse 4, Luke 3, 2, and 3, because they're the synoptic gospels and they often record the same thing. They all say those things. Pre- he's preaching a message of repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself taught the same thing and can be found also in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Mark 1 through 15, he says the same thing. Repentance means to turn away from sin and start obeying God. Real repentance is the first step of the gospel. The apostles understood this as well. In Galatians 5, Paul makes a list of things that are off the list for Christians to do. So again, I'm going to ask you to turn. We're going to be turning a lot today. So Galatians chapter 5. Verses 19 through 21. 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so for a list of six, he doesn't really um, say what the things are immoral to do, but he doesn't have to say them because his audience already knew what those things were. So um, again, if you want to flip with me, we're going to go back to Leviticus chapter 18. And really the, there's a list of things that um, keeps them keeps them pure, and keeps them holy before the Lord, right? So, so laws of immoral relations. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, verse 2, I am the Lord. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Uh, verse 4, you perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them, I am the Lord your God. You are to keep my statutes and judgments. Um, verse 6. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his, of his to uncover his nakedness. That means to lie with them. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father or your mother. She is your mother. Uh, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife if your father's in your father's nakedness. Uh, the nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's sister. So there's a list of things. Um, continue not to do or stay away from family relations um, and of course um, not to lie with animals not to lie with one of the same sex um, so things that we're supposed to um, steer clear from um, Galatians passage said we are to steer clear from impurity so we're supposed to be ritually pure all right so that means we are to follow these things and um, by not doing these things, we stay pure before the Lord. Um, he mentioned sensuality, which is... Sensuality is the idea that you're devoted to the gratification of your bodily appetites. Uh, enmity means having a hostile or unfriendly disposition. And then the difference between enmity and strife. Strife is conflict sometimes can be violent. Um, so sin is a, is a violation of the commandments of God, as found in the Older Testament and summarized for us by Paul. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. The gospel message calls on us to repent. Let's, um, if you hold your place in Galatians, we're uh, near Ephesians. So flip over to Ephesians 5. I'll read verses 3 through 10. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I write before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand why my insight in the mystery of Christ... Oh, wrong chapter. I'm sorry. Chapter 5, or I was reading from chapter 3. But immorality, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person, or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ." Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The gospel calls on us to repent. This doesn't mean that we never sin. 
For we know we all stumble, we trip, we succumb to temptation, and sometimes even willfully sin. When we do, we must sincerely repent. John 1.1 says, No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Anyone who does continue in their sin has not seen him or known him. Repentance is not a one-time only event. It requires the ongoing discipline of denying the flesh um, by saying no to the world and its temptations, turning to the Lord and following Jesus. Repentance means surrendering our whole lives to God, our passions, our desires, behaviors, our motivations, plans, relationships. Repentance means putting the flesh to death by surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. Point, uh, um, teaching number two is faith toward God through Jesus. How does faith toward God function as a distinctive for the first century Christians? All of Judaism, all the different sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and a handful of others we're not as familiar with, they believed in God, and all of them taught the concept of faith in God. The apostles taught a specific type of faith toward God, that they did not have in common with those other sects of first century Judaism. The Hebrew 6 passage does not say faith in God. It's something more than just believing in God's existence. As James tells us that the shuddering demons do, right? In verse 6 he says, um, they believe and they shudder, but they don't obey, right? Verse 6 he says, without faith, as is, James says, is, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. So in other words, there's the belief that God rewards merit and punishes sin. But there's more to it than that too. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us what he means in, in chapter 11. So if, if you're still... A, I lost my spot in Hebrews 2. So you flip over to Hebrews 11 verse 1. And this has been uh, taught about here as well. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he spends the whole chapter giving us examples of men and women who live their life according to faith. And then in verse 39, at the very end, he says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So faith on God implies confidence that God will keep the promises he had, despite the lack of evidence that he is keeping the promise. Right. So all those stories... They, they were asked to do things, and they didn't get to see the promise. They didn't get to see the promises that God talked about in their fullness. The generation that saw the erection of our master, however, did see the first fruits of the promises fulfilled. In verse 40, the same chapter, he says, Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Namely, his promises about the coming of the Messiah, the final redemption, the resurrection of the dead, the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the world to come. In the apostolic world, the revelation, death, and resurrection of the Messiah brought faith in God to a whole new level. It went beyond that God exists. It's that goes beyond that God even is one, which all of those other sects believed. It went beyond the reward and punishment in this life and the next. The apostles were teaching promises about those things through the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, and the evidence of his resurrection from the dead, with direct evidence and the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises. His resurrection provides evidence of an afterlife, reward and punishment, the coming resurrection, and the redemption and the restoration of Israel and the kingdom on earth. Um, Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, says, Now to him who is able to establish you, 
according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Paul tells us that God revealed Jesus as the Messiah to bring about the obedience of faith. Peter summarizes our faith toward God through Jesus in 1 Peter 1, verses... 20 and 21. He says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Faith requires repentance from sin and a knowledge that he rewards and punishes according to our behavior. Uh, Section number three, uh, instruction about washings. Um, and I think maybe these things, um, I think we're probably taught about the least sometimes, uh, at least in our own upbringing, in our own churches. But uh, the phrase instruction about washings comes from the Greek, which is baptismon didakis. Baptismon is the plural for baptism, which means a submersion in water, usually for washing. The word baptisma, you've already put this together in your head, means baptism, but it means immersion or submersion. In the days of John the Immerser, and the apostles, observant Jews, descended into a naturally fed pool, naturally fed pool or gathering of water, a river or lake, and submerged completely below the surface. The word for these natural gatherings of water is a mikvah. Mike, can you uh, put up the uh, picture of the mikvah for us? Um, Immersion for purification entails a full body baptism into living water, naturally flowing water from rain, a spring, or a river. All right, so if you look to your screen there, there's a picture of mikvah. So when a person would go to worship the Lord, um, they would go to a site, and they, if they were impure for whatever reason, um, and they would go inside, dunk themselves, or completely submerge themselves, come out, and then they would be ritually clean from whatever they had done. Um, I lost my spot here. Uh, Leviticus 14 um, gives a list of things that someone might do to be ritually impure and have cause to be unclean. So Leviticus 14, 1 through 9. Um, The word of the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out outside of the camp. They shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds, cedar wood and scarlet string, and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood for the scarlet string, uh, dip them in live bird in the blood. That was, uh, sorry, let's, let's clean... Okay, verse 8. Then the one to be cleansed shall then wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, bathe in water, and be clean. Now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside his tent for seven days. And then verse 15, 1 through 10. So that's the cleansing of a leper. 15, 1 through 10. There's cleansing unhealthiness. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man is a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Um, this, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. Every bed on which the person with the discharge lies becomes unclean, and everything on which he sits becomes unclean. However, 
Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Right, so uh, you're unclean, and if you touch somebody, that person becomes unclean. That which you sit upon becomes unclean. Um, And then verses, there's some other things there. If we skip over to verse 16, same chapter. If a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water, be unclean until evening. As for any garment or any leather in which there is an emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean till evening. So these are just some examples of things that a person would become unclean and have to wash themselves. Uh, woman, uh, verse 19, when a woman has a discharge, if in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean. Everything in which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Anything she sits on. So after all these things, again, she would have to go wash herself and then have to wait for seven days to be ritually pure. Um, the Torah prohibited the ritually impure from entering the temple, from entering and eating the sacrifices until they had immersed in water. So if they were impure, they would go and wash themselves in one of those mikvahs, and then they would be clean and be able to go worship the Lord with the rest of the community. A Gentile undergoing conversion into Judaism immersed in, in a mikvah as their final rite of passage. The disciples of Jesus used immersion for a similar induction ceremony. They underwent a spiritual change and emerged as a disciple and follower of Jesus. For the readers of this letter, at the time it was written, it refers specifically to ceremonial immersion in a pool of living water for the sake of obtaining ritual purity. Uh, also, I said at the beginning of this, um, um, instruction about wadding, water, sorry, instruction about washing. See, this is why I write things down. Um, the Greek is baptismon didakis. The word didakis means instruction or teaching. We think of baptism as this ritual that John the Baptist invented and that Jesus and his disciples took on that practice when initiating new converts. Right? We see in the book of Acts a number of times where a new believer is is initiated. Right? So if, if, if you're willing to continue to flip over through your Bible with me, we're in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. I'm not going to go through the context of all these. Just We're just going to see the examples. Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, that's us, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Flip over to chapter 8, picking up in verse 26. Let's see, this is uh, Philip speaking to an Ethiopian. Uh, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the, to the road that descends from Jerusalem in Gaza. And so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading read this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. 
The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, or himself or of someone else? Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, they came to some water, and and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, just as well Uh, Sorry, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Uh, Next chapter, chapter 9, verses uh, 17 through 19. Um, So the uh, the Apostle Paul um, has been converted. Well, he's he's had his experience on the road, and he's told to go a man named Ananias. And here, um, um, Ananias is told to go um, because... uh, um, He's a little bit nervous about Paul because Paul's been persecuting the church. So Ananias departed and entered his house, picking up verse 17. And after laying his hands on him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Uh, Next chapter, 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, so that they asked him to stay on a few days. So, this baptism ceremony marked a new believer's initiation in the school of Jesus' disciples. The baptism was and is a one-time event that marks the beginning of that person's life of discipleship through Jesus. It was not, however, the only time a person would have underwent a ritual immersion. Baptism was not a new Christian ritual. The immersions an Israelite would partake, it didn't remove original sin, it was not administered to infants and children like I was, it wasn't a sacrament which most Christian denominations still hold. It didn't involve the sprinkling of water or a baptizer dunking another person and wasn't ordinarily a public event. Jewish people practice many types of baptism for many different reasons, and those reasons were to remove impurity. So to come back to the book of Hebrew, the passage, one, um, You don't have to go back to that passage. But when Peter says the, the, the people in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, not for the forgive Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. No one said, Baptized? What's that? How do you do it? Because they all knew what it was. So why is instruction about washings an elementary principle? Uh, the Didakis, uh, William Lane points out in his World Biblical Commentary that several early Greek manuscripts use a different use of that word, Didakin. He argues that this is the older and more authentic use of the word. It's not a big difference, but he felt this to mean that there was a catechism, a new initiate into the faith, had to learn before he could receive immersion in the name of Jesus. The words Didakin and Didakis uh, make me think of the Didache. Um, I know some of you have read it. Uh, I know the, the women's group uh, went through it a little bit bef- a couple of years ago. Um, 
the word, uh, the Didache, or instruction, is a shorthand name of a very early Christian document titled The Instruction of the Master Through the Twelve Apostles to the Gentiles. Uh, Mike, can you uh, pull up uh, the Didache passage number one? It's not very big on that screen, is it? Okay. So, if you, I know it's a little small, but the beginning of the DDK says, There are two ways, one life and one of death. However, there is a great difference between the two, na- two ways. Now, the way of life is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, you shall love your fellow as yourself. Whatever you do not want happening to you, do not do to another. This is the teaching about these matters. Speak well of those who speak ill of you and pray for your enemies. Fast for those who persecute you. For what special favor do you merit if you love those who love you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? However, you are to love those who hate you, and you will not have any enemies. Restrain yourself from natural and physical inclinations. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other to him, and you will be complete. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. If someone takes away your cloak, give him your tunic also. If someone takes away what is yours, do not demand it back, for you are not even able to take it back. That's from the DDK. That's the very first section, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That's from the Vine of David translation. Um, So it goes on like that for six chapters. And it should should sound very reminiscent of the Beatitudes, right? Um, It lays out the way of life and the way of death declaring acts of righteousness and wickedness and making a distinction between right and wrong. It goes on to paraphrase the teachings of Jesus, the basics of the Torah, like the Ten Commandments. Um, what it is, it's, it's an instruction of godly living. Um, and then, it, Mike, if you can pull up uh, passage number two, then it shifts ab- uh, abruptly into a short discussion on how to conduct an immersion. It's not long, so if you can't pull it up, I can just read it. It's shorter than that. Um, it says, concerning immersion, immerse in this way. Having first said all of these things, so the first things that they already talked about in the first six chapters of the DDK, immerse in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you don't have living water, immerse in cold water. If you cannot immerse in cold water, then warm water. If you do not have either in sufficient quantity to immerse, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Prior to the immersion, the one performing the immersion and the one being immersed should fast beforehand, and also any other if they can. Require the one being immersed to fast one or two days prior to the immersion. Um, So I think that uh, having first said these things, as it says there, I think it refers to those six chapters so that the passage could read as an instruction about washings. So before the community allowed the new initiate to receive baptism, it required him to undergo a period of instruction. So maybe the writer of Hebrews had something similar to the DDK in mind. The DDK represents only one example of the instruction, and it happens to be written for Gentile disciples. But both Jewish and Gentile believers needed to be instructed before going to the water, and they needed to understand the teachings of, of Jesus. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 the Acts accounts... Um, don't give an in-depth teaching, right? But it, it's clear that these people know, know the word of the Lord and they are accepting God's word as through Jesus Christ. So they are, um, when they're being baptized, it's, it's not about ritual purification. It's about saying, yes, I believe this. 
I'm going to take this on. I'm committing to this. And this is what we do with our, with ours, our children that are being catechized here. We're making sure that they understand the teachings. Hopefully it's more than just the basics, that it's, it's something that's a little more uh, in-depth. But the goal is that, that they are taking on this life uh, of Jesus um, or this faith in God through Jesus. Um, this time of instruction reminds me of another first century movement by a group called the Essenes. If a person wanted to join the community, he was kept on probation for the first year. During that year, they learned the community rules and the way of life. If they decided that the monk life rules were too rigid, they could opt out. They couldn't hang around the community indefinitely or be uncommitted. So maybe the disciples of Jesus had a similar probationary period of intense instruction that culminated with immersion. But I think it was important that people counted the cost before committing to the high-calling discipleship. Those demands are high, right? We're to take up our cross, we're to die to self, being ready to die possibly for the name of Jesus. Not something to be entered in casually. So we consider this. Um, That's section three. Section four, the laying on of hands. Uh, Those first three topics present sort of a basic progression of a new believer. They hear the gospel message of repentance and place their faith in God to the revelation of the Messiah. Then they receive some basic instruction on the teachings of Jesus before undergoing immersion into living water. So the three different functions for the laying on on of hands appear in the Bible. So we're going to focus on those things now. There are three types uh, that we see. We have the bestowing bestowing of blessings upon children, disciples, petitioners, or the sick. We have ritual substitution. Uh, the uh, uh, someone takes you, takes your place, right? So the animals being sacrificed, or the Levites themselves, and then we have ordination. Um, I want to pick just a couple of passages. I don't know how long I'm. It feels like it's long, or not to the rest of you. It feels long to me. Um, so if you flip to Genesis 48, um, we have the first instance of laying on of hands here. Genesis 48, 13 through 16. Um, so Joseph is wanting to, to bless his sons. So Joseph took... Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Actually, this is for, for Israel to bless them. Then Joseph took both Ephraim and Manasseh from his knee and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. All right. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all Israel, Israel, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Uh, we see that Jesus blesses the young also in, in, in uh, the, the gospel, uh, both Matthew and Mark. So in Matthew chapter 10, See, I made sure not to uh, put all sticky notes in it because I felt it was cheating, and then I would get to passages and be finished with them before you got to them. So, all right, ten verse sixteen. Nope, that's not it. So it's it's Mark ten verse sixteen. Sorry about that. 
All right, Jesus blesses the little children in actually 15 and 16. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And he does something similar in Mark chapter 5, verse 23. This time, uh, this is for healing. Um, One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get so that we'll get well and live. Uh, we already read uh, Acts 19 where Paul is healed. Um, and then Acts 28, verses 7 to 9. We have another example of uh, laying on hands to heal. Seven through nine. And in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entered us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was laying in his bed with a recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Uh, the next part, so we have, so sorry, we have the blessing of children. Uh, we see where Jesus will bless his disciples before he sends them out. And then uh, we see laying on hands to heal sick people. Uh, then we have another, the next example is ritual substitution uh, through animal sacrifice or the Levites themselves. Uh, Judaism uses the word semikah to mean the laying on of hands. Um, Leviticus 1, sorry, flipping back again, verses 3 and 4. I would start at verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it. If a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted to him to make atonement on his behalf. So the worshippers going to the Lord, and they regarded the animal as a substitute for themselves. This act implies a physical leaning on the animal with some weight, and that symbolizes the man's identity into the animal. Um, flip over to Numbers 8, verses 5 through 11. So we have the substitution of the animal for the person. And this time, this is about um, the Levites taking on... Cause, right, so God pulls the Levites out and says, you're going to do all the acts of service, but you're, and you're going to do that on behalf of all your people. right? Um, picking up at verse 5 of chapter 8. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water in them, and let them use a razor over their whole body, and wash their clothes, and they will be clean. Then let them take a bowl with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bowl you shall take for a sin offering. So you shall present the Levites before the Lord of, before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. And present the Levites before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel, that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. 
And then we have ordination. So ordination is a laying on of hands that can also show an investment of identity and authority in the ritual. So staying in the book of Numbers, go to Numbers 27. Picking up at verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. You should put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. So Moses commissions Joshua as his successor. Um, In Numbers, if we jump back a couple chapters to 11, verses 16 and 17. Um, Seventy elders are are, uh, commissioned to assist. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon you, and I will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. So there, uh, um, this laying on of hands to give um, authority um, is done for elders, and then it was passed on to rabbis. Um, so anytime somebody would take on the new... Um, the new responsibilities, they would get hands laid on them. So you have this, this line of succession from Moses laying on of hands to laying on of hands to the next generation and the next generation. So we have this uh, authority being passed on and on. Um, and then let's look at uh, the apostles doing the same thing. If you jump to the book of Acts, back to the book of Acts with me, to chapter 6, in verse 6, if you haven't given up flipping with me, So um, the disciples are being overwhelmed by the responsibilities. So they're going to choose other men in which to kind of take on the responsibility of taking care of the orphans and the widow. And um, verse 6 says, and, and these they brought before the apostles. And, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then in verse 13, sorry, chapter 13, verse 3. All right, in this, in this instance, uh, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to be sent out. And they said, when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here we go again, this conferring of the Spirit or imparting authority. Um, and he does it again to, to Timothy a couple times and tells him um, in those letters, if you will flip with me again to the book of First Timothy. Verse 14. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And then um, in his second letter, so telling him to lay hands on people, to bless them, give them authority, encourage them, right? Uh, so 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7 does it again. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. 
For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So both Jesus and the Council of Elders, they lay hands or bless as a gesture of identification, ordination, and pass on the Holy Spirit. God takes from the Spirit that had been laid upon Jesus, and he placed some of that Spirit on his disciples. And then Paul does the same thing with the elders and on to Timothy. And so coming back to this Hebrew passage, the apostolic community used the elements of all three of these things for the purpose of, of blessing the new disciple, praying for them, prophesying over them, ordaining the new initiate into his new role as a disciple and conferring the Spirit on them. The new disciple received the, the laying on of hands from one of the apostles, or from not one of the apostles, from someone who had received it already from one of the apostles, in order to form this, this unbroken chain of continuity from Jesus to the next generation of disciples. All right, I'll spend less time on this next section. Uh, uh, number five is the resurrection of the dead. Again, like I said, we've talked about this and been taught about this a lot here, but it's one of those basic things, and it's okay to go over the basics again. Um, it's easy to be confused how um, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven all the time. He sent his disciples to teach about the kingdom of heaven and warned about not entering, about things that you would do to not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, so the reason for this in particular is that in those days, Jewish people used the word heaven as a way to avoid saying the name of God. So there's the confusion. We think of, um, I'm going to get to the resurrection of the dead. But the idea that uh, kingdom of heaven is the reason we think that when we die, we're fo- our focus solely is on heaven and not on the kingdom. So they would use the word heaven as a way to avoid saying the name of God. They use a number of substitutes like heavenly father, Lord, Most High, Almighty One, Holy One, and they used heaven to refer to God. So we do this too. So I'll give you an example. Um, so to take the Lord's name in vain, we might to avoid it, we might say, "Oh, for heaven's sakes!" But really, you know, we're saying that to not say, "For God's sakes," right? Because we don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, so in that regard, the term "Kingdom of Heaven" functions for the term uh, "Kingdom of God," which means the Messianic era. What that means is that almost every time Jesus and the apostles were talking about going to heaven, they're actually speaking about the Messianic era. I need to say that all to set up this next section. Our hope is not in heaven. But really, our hope for eternal life is not in heaven. The souls in paradise or heaven are the souls of the dead. They're not the souls of the living. When the apostles went out testifying to the resurrection, they didn't proclaim the Christ crucified on the day and then he went to heaven, right? They proclaimed that he rose from the dead. And that's what we live for. That's why we die fearlessly, hopefully. The belief that the dead will live again. And that death is not the end. This type of resurrection is not resuscitation. We see that. We see that in the everyday life. Uh, heart stops and out come the paddles and people are brought back to life from the dead. We have biblical examples of this too. Both Elijah and Elisha resurrect people. Jesus resurrected a young man at nine, a young girl at Capernaum, and of course, uh, he resurrects his friend Lazarus. And all of those were resuscitations because eventually they all died again. So we await a resurrection of the dead. Um, I'm going to ask you to flip again, if you will, to talk about the resurrection of the dead specifically. Isaiah 26, verse 19. I know we all know that the resurrection of the dead, but... The resurrection of the dead is not something that's that's taught anymore. A lot of Protestant churches don't teach it. They just teach about this, um, you know, getting to play 18 holes on on a golf course of your choice and living on the beach, right? That's that's um, 
what a lot of people are taught these, these days. So Isaiah 26, verse 19. I'm just picking a verse here for a second. It says, Your dead will live, the corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Daniel says something similar in chapter 12. So if you can, we'll begin to Daniel chapter 12. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting, everlasting contempt. Right there's, there's the difference between those who are believers and those who are not. Um, Paul talks about it in the book of Romans chapter 6. Verses 8 and 9, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And then also in 1 Corinthians 4, verse... 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. The resurrected body will never die. God will revive their physical bodies and return their souls to those bodies. In the process of that miracle, he would transform those physical bodies so they cannot die. Jesus and the apostles taught about two distinct resurrection events. In the first resurrection, the exiles of Israel and those who are the Messiah will be raised to life, gathered to the Messiah, and brought to the kingdom. Um, Jesus talks about this in his uh, in John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of God. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are on the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth and those who do the good deeds to, his, to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to resurrection of judgment. The Son, Jesus, gives life to those who hear his voice, and those who did not will come will not come to life at that time. Um, we've gone through this passage a lot in this congregation in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Uh, the dead and Christ uh, will join the Messiah and be caught up with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. In the air. Those still alive will be caught up with him. Messiah comes to gather the, ex the exiles of Israel to bring them with him to the Holy Land, as the prophets have predicted. And all those gathered there will go with him to Jerusalem. The second, re the second resurrection takes place at the end before the judgment. And we read about that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw the thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Um, for we really have, well, I have Anna. For younger, for younger disciples in this room, um, you might be wondering, well, well, what do those resurrected bodies look like? We get a, um, a small glimpse in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 24, verses 39 and 40. I realize that we have some youngers at home watching. So, uh, Luke 24, verses 39 and 40. This is after Jesus has been crucified and is resurrected, and he's uh, meeting with his disciples. Let's see, while they were uh, actually picking verse. Pick up at 36. While they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Remember, they were shut up in in a room hiding. He said to them, Why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So, he has died, he's resurrected, and the Master still wears the wounds of his crucifixion and is able to appear. Uh, Romans 8, uh, actually let's go to um, 1 Corinthians 15. Kind of um, talks about what our bodies will be transformed and how it, how it happens. 1 Corinthians 15. 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. These bodies of ours will be transformed into an immortal, imperishable state like that of the Messiah. And when that happens... As 1 Corinthians 15.54 says, death is swallowed up in victory. I'm almost done. So those of you who have uh, glazed looks over your eyes, um, finishing here shortly. Uh, so the last uh, teaching is, uh, the last section is for the eternal judgment. At the time of the apostles, Jewish people fell mostly into tools, two schools of thought. The Sadducees taught God dispenses justice only in this world. So when a person suffered, that was a clear sign that they or their parents had done something worthy of that punishment. And likewise, if they were successful, that meant they were obedient. If they did not deserve um, what they were receiving, they could expect a reversal in this lifetime. So final justice for the individual happens in this lifetime, and there is no resurrection. And of course, the joke is, and that's sad, you see. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. All right. The Pharisees also taught that people receive justice for their deeds in this life. But they also believe that the ultimate judgment takes place in the afterlife. So God dispenses his ultimate judgments after death in Gehenna and paradise, right, the good and the bad place. I said that backwards, the bad and the good place. And then after the resurrection, a final judgment will be assigned according to their deeds while alive. So someone might not get everything he deserves in this lifetime. Jesus' teachings are filled with the idea of preparing for this final judgment, and it seems that he's either teaching about the kingdom or his final judgment. And for this, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew. We'll see a lot of instances where he's talking about the judgment. We'll start in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. 
Um, now he's talking about sending out, these are instructions to the disciples before he sends them out. And he says, truly I say to you, um, if, if they don't receive you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what they went through, in the day of judgment than for that city. He does the same thing in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 22. Uh, these are for unrepenting cities. He says, nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Again, the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of the judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Right? So there's a harsh judgment for those who don't repent, and then here we are told that there's, there's judgment upon us for the, the words that we speak. So let's be careful with that. Um, let's continue flipping over to the next chapter, verse 13, verses 40 through 43. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing, gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In that same chapter, verse 49 and 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place, weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a judgment coming. Jesus talked about it. Um, we should take it seriously as, um, as we're going to give an account for our actions and our deeds. Um, 25, if you would, uh, chapter 25, verse 30 and 32. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. They will mourn, right? They had their chance to repent, and they didn't. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, and from one end of the sky to the other. And then, uh, same chapter, verses 45 and 6. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at their proper time. Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So let's be ready, right? So let's, let's act as the word tells us to. Let's speak as the word tells us to because we don't know the hour in which he's going to come. Um, both the Old and New Testament also speak about... Uh, uh, books of Judgment. So uh, we were in Daniel before. Uh, I want to ask you to flip to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We have Judgment and the Books of Judgment. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, the Father, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days there is seated with thousands of angels flowing forth like a river to serve him while 10,000s upon 10,000s people waiting for their verdicts. 
and they stand before him, and the book of judgments are opened, and then the Son of Man steps forward to deliver the sentence. So this is verse 13 and 14, same chapter. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. A final judgment is coming for every human being, and the Messiah will preside as the judge, acting as the agent of his Father. John 5, verse 30 says, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I hear, and my judgment is just, because I seek not of my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, let's flip it just a couple more times. We're almost done. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 10 and 11. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. This passage comes back to knowing the fear of the Lord, which is we already focused on today, is that God will judge the wicked and reward the righteous. Uh, jumping, we're going to come back, go back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Like I said, I promise we're almost done. Then I saw a great throne, and him who sat upon it, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. That's a snapshot, right, of the final judgment, right? The separation, those are our deeds, uh, whether good or bad, put in different books, and then the names for those um, found in the book of life get to uh, go to be with the Lord and uh, be there for the new heaven and the new earth and the rest are thrown into the lake of fire. So that passage says, uh, the Hebrews passage says, on to maturity, right? We can't get there until we understand these basics. And going through these sections again tells me that I still need to be reminded of these things. Um, um, washing of, the washing of hands, you know, the, um, so I can't remember what it is, right? The washing of hands, right? Uh, no, that's not even it. See? Laying on of hands. So, no, I don't know that one. I know laying on of hands. It's the, uh, I lost it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Hebrews 6. Does everyone have that? Uh, 
press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Right? The repentance is not about not having to follow God's law, right? It has not gone away. It has not perished. Repentance is from sin. We're supposed to uh, press on with faith toward God because our actions show that um, God will reward and punish based on those actions. The instruction about washings, um, right, could be about um, someone being baptized needing to be instructed in the teachings of Jesus. We have the laying on of hands, which is about um, blessing and giving authority uh, and imparting the Spirit. Um, then we have the resurrection of the dead, um, which is not always taught. And then, of course, the eternal judgment. We are all going to be judged for what we've done, whether a believer or not a believer. Um, so what does maturity look like? Right, uh, Getting past these, these basics, um, I think maturity is just my own thoughts. Right, It's, it's focusing on... Uh, looking at the teachings of the Master, looking at the Beatitudes, which we read this morning as part of the presentation section, right? Being humble in spirit, um, um, doing the things that we're supposed to to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, I think it's, it's it's doing the one anothering thing. He doesn't talk about these things, but being of one mind, um, being united, caring for one another, accepting one another, looking out for one another. I think those things show maturity in our faith. And I think we do a pretty good job of that, but not always, right? We don't always do it. We don't always do a great job of it within our own families. We're pretty good about it, and when we're community, doing community with others, but um, uh, doing these things in our own homes is sometimes harder than it is to do it to others. Um, so, would you would you join me? Actually, wait, hold on. I have one more passage. I'm so sorry. Hebrews 10, verses 19. I think this gives another picture of what maturity looks like. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? That's repenting from our sin and staying clear, staying away from it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Our hope is is in God, that he is just. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love one another, do good to one another. Not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, um, it's good.